0: We come to the part of the, of the day that I have been looking forward to since March. And without any further introduction, I would like to give you Sybil C. from Burbank, California. Hi,
1: everybody. My name is Sybil Doris Adams. Stratton, Hart, Maxwell, Willis, Corwin, And all Well, I I had to get married five times in order to find the right one. to find a sober member of Alcoholics Anonymous, and he is. His name is Bob Corin, and he's at home uh, taking care of our menagerie. <laughs> we love animals, and we finally overdid it a little bit. <laughs> Can't help it. Litter of little kittens came along. We took them. We really gave give them away. Nobody would keep them. We started out with four dogs. Two died. Two died of old age, and we have two are on the threshold of going from old age and. Uh, the last time I came home from a trip uh, or I was leaving from the airport, two little black kittens walked up on the porch and I said, oh, Bob, take those kittens when you get back home from the airport and do something with them, but don't let them get put away or, or killed or anything, but give them away. So I called him up on the phone that night from the hotel and I said, what about those little black kittens? He said, honey, they're sleeping in the bathtub. <laughs> he put a blanket down there. They're still there. <laughs> they're still there. <laughs> I call them Quattro and Cinco because they're cat number four and cat number five. <laughs> I want to tell you about Cincinnati. I have never seen such a beautiful city from the air and after I got on the ground, and it is gorgeous. I had no idea. The only thing I knew about Cincinnati was WKRP in Cincinnati, (laughs) which for some strange reason is no longer on the air except in reruns, and we watched it the night before we left. We wished they'd started up again. It was just a charming thing to see. And uh, I want to get a good look at the skyline of Cincinnati before I go and see if it's like that one that's the lead-in to that uh, that, uh, former uh, piece on TV and also I've got to go across that famous bridge. Bob told me not to come back until I saw the Ohio River and, uh, and saw that bridge that that famous man uh, made, the one that did the Brooklyn Bridge, and I, I, he knows everything about Cincinnati. He just told me all about it. He's never been here, but he knows <laughs> a lot. <laughs> I'm going to go home and talk it up about moving here. I never want to go back, I'll tell you for sure. It's delightful, and so are you. And you've been so good to me, I just can't stand it. I just can't hardly stand it, because I've never been anywhere where I've met such love and, and hospitality. And it's, uh, it's just a joyous occasion for me. Thank you very much for letting me come here this morning and be standing up here when I'd a lot rather be sitting down there listening to all of you, and that's a fact. Really and truly. I can't get enough of Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, As Bob often says, he says, I'm having a love affair with Alcoholics Anonymous. That's, That's the way I feel about it. From the day that I read about it in the Saturday Evening Post on March 1st, 1941. Drunk, hungover, sad, sick, a little baby at home. I'd been missing, I'd been in my car driving, wound up in San Francisco, didn't know how I got there. I was too sick to drive the car back, and I picked up a hitchhiker, and he drove the car back. I slept past out in the back seat, and then when we got to Los Angeles, he shook me, and he said, Lady, we're in Los Angeles. Here's where I leave you, and I called out looked around, and I saw a sign there that said, uh, Turkish Bass, and I thought, well, I've got to get you know, straightened around before I go home. I had this little baby, and my mother was taking care of her, and uh, I was afraid. And I thought, I'll take a Turkish bath and look good, and then I'll cook up a good lie and tell them another story, and I'll have time to think about it. And I thought, but I can't think now, so in order not to think, I'll have to read something, and the newsstand was right there where I was standing, thinking this all over. And it had laid out papers and magazines, and I picked up the first one that was laying there, and it was a Saturday Evening Post dated March 1st, 1941, by Jack Alexander, that magnificent piece that got so many people sober. After the Turkish bath, I was too sick to read the article, but I looked at the pictures. They showed a man being placed in an ambulance. And uh, then uh, he was on a stretcher, and they were putting him in an ambulance and i i could see that ambulance i couldn't see a big sign with the big red a's on it but that, i thought it would have them i thought that's what it would be i thought it was an aa hospital i was so hungover. over and i thought oh that man's real sick he's worse than i am they're going to put him in that aa hospital now that's all i got out of that article but it was enough for me because i had read about it in 1939 and a little piece in the Liberty Magazine, now defunct. The piece was by Fulton Ausler and it was called Alcoholics and Gods. And I was a mess and I should have responded then and meant to like a lot of us do when we read, read about it. Oh, I've got to do that right now. I'll do that tomorrow. <laughs> and so it was two years later, from 1939 to 1941, that I read about it again in the, in the Saturday Evening Post while I was having that Turkish bath and thinking about some good lies to tell to the family. And I rang the bell and had them bring me all the ingredients to get a letter mail. When I was drinking, and and today, it's very hard for me to get all four things. I think it's four. An envelope, a stamp, and a pencil, and paper. I find two, and oftentimes three. But I found letters there at home the other day that I wrote to my brother, a surviving brother who lives in Dallas, Texas, that I wrote two or three months ago because didn't have any stamps or didn't have whatever it took. <laughs> I just don't have what it takes to get letters mailed. And, but I mailed that letter. It's not a lucky thing that I did or I, I would have died soon. I, I truly would have. Um, I was 32 at the time going on 33 years old. I'd been drunk for 17 years. No times in between that I can remember being sober except nine days when I went up to a friend's chicken ranch in Modesto and and uh found booze up there some some unknowing good citizen brought a jug of wine in one night and i drank it and and uh took the next greyhound bus home and really I, I wanted to quit secretly but i didn't tell anybody i wanted to especially not my big fat brother who drank with me he was always on my case about quitting you don't drink like i do sir. but i think thank thank god i don't i bailed him out of jail 86 times <laughs> same cops would turn me loose and uh, lock him up. <laughs> we were fighting Ross. So we were always getting in great jams. Finally, he wouldn't drink with me because he said I drank too much and he didn't want to be around me. And I didn't want to be around him there towards the last either, to tell you the truth. But what a wonderful thing it was that I followed through at the Turkish bath and, and wrote this pitiful little letter. I don't remember what it said or anything. I didn't know I'd be here today telling about it. <laughs> Keep a copy.
0: <laughs> <laughs>
1: and son of a gun, I just said, uh, "Tell me where it is, and, and, and I'll come back to your A.A. hospital in New York right away if you'll tell me where it is on account of the picture in it." I thought I'd have to. Ke- I'll take the next plane. My pitiful little letter said, and I went on home. I don't know what happened in the interim, whether I got drunk or stayed sober, but within a few days I got a letter from the New York headquarters, which wasn't very big because Ruth Hawk was its secretary. Non-alcoholic girl that Bill Wilson, our founder, and Hank Parkhurst had uh, had hired years before as their stenographer. Uh, When uh, Ruth went to work for them, they had a little auto accessories business in New York. Ruth Hawk came out to Los Angeles and, and talked to us three or four years ago and, and told us all that. Oh, I was, that was fabulous. You ought to invite her out here. She can tell you all the history that's not down on paper. And so she had worked for Bill and Hank Parkhurst and they, they were supposed to pay her $25 a week. and They didn't have it. So they got this thing about AA started, they invented AA, and they sold, and they gave her stock in Alcoholics Anonymous for her salary. And she said, and can you beat it? She says, I, I live with my poor old father who was dead, broke, and they tried to sell him some stock. <laughs> well, needless to say, that was all short lived, but there she still sat working for them and then when a letter a stray letter would come along about AA she would be the one uh, to answer it see and I was so lucky and she answered mine and uh, I didn't save that letter either and that that breaks my heart and but I didn't know I was going to get sober I thought I was going to die and it said generally speaking it said you don't have to come back to New York to find Alcoholics Anonymous because AA started in California in December of 1939. Four fellows, drunk, in the county hospital, got acquainted, got friendly, got sober, and hit the street the same day. And they stood around on one foot and the other. They had the big red book that a woman by the name of Kane Miller, a non-alcoholic from New York passing through, had left in the alcoholic ward. And uh, they had given it to these fellows, and they read it, and they were impressed and all discharged the same day, just holding that big red book covered with a red linen cover. I had one. Somebody swiped it. <laughs> and uh, so they said, now what are we going to do? Are we never going to see each other again? And one fellow said, no, come on over to my house in Pasadena, and we'll just continue what we've been doing, reading to each other out of the big book. And they didn't know anything about AA, so that's they, they read the fifth chapter to each other. One of them said, what do we read out of the book? And one of them says, well, they're in there somewhere. It tells us how it works. So let's just start there because it says how it works must tell us something, what to go on. And that's what they did. So they read the fifth chapter to each other. And that became a thing that, that we do in most places. A lot, some places do not, to open a meeting. And they read that and they met together until finally there were four and six and... Eight, and then here I am getting ripe for AA and when I come in, there's about a dozen of them. I was told by Ruth to go down to the Elks temple and she says, they'll be so glad to see you they you've never had a woman, alcoholic. <laughs> oh, that's scary and that's frightening and I was timid and I had developed a nervous twitch oh, about six months before that from drinking and shaking but the shaking would stop but the nervous twitch just kept at it like I'd look at you and I'd want to impress you and I I could feel it coming and tears would come in my eyes and my lip would go and so horribly embarrassing it was just awful and so here I was trembling and shaking and everything and getting ready to go to that meeting down my my alcoholic husband who had been taking care of me and threatening to divorce me and, and take my baby away from me he was glad to drive me down there we drove down there and uh, was to the Elks Temple, and we were directed into a little little room that just had a table and chairs, a table the size of one of these, and seated around it were maybe 10 or 12 men. And I sat there with this red turban on that I'd stuck my hair under. My hair was long and thick, and the permanents were rotten in those days, and it was frizzy, and I tucked all my hair up under that. And uh, my bloodshot eyes matched that red turban. <laughs> cheeks were bloated, and I had this nervous twitch. So I, I sat there with my head down. I didn't look up at anybody at all. And finally, the man got up at the podium, and oh, he was an elegant man blue serge suit and a voice of authority. Uh, he was the leader. Uh, and by that, I mean, in those days, if you were the leader, You kept your job until you were thrown out. (laughs) I wish he had kept it longer. He kept it for two years before they got rid of him in a subtle, kind of subtle, way. His name was Frank Randall. He was my sponsor. No women. And he opened the meeting and I'm sitting there with my head down and I hear him, I heard him uh, say, now, this is a meeting of alcoholics anonymous. We're all alcoholics who are here to obtain and maintain our sobriety on an all-time basis with no mental reservation whatsoever. And I thought, ah, what an order. I can't do it. Every meeting, every meeting. That's the way they did it there. We're there on an all-time basis, so help me God, you know. <laughs> no mental reservations whatsoever. I had plenty of mental reservations. Believe me, I had plenty of mental reservations. I was going to do the best I could. And I, I, I just didn't think it could be done. And that was as scary as could be. I, I, and then I, he... he talked beautifully, and I'm sure he did that, and I, but I was so scared and so nervous and one thing and another. And then he said, but uh, he made quite long talks before he would get into the business of calling on a few people, and he said, uh, now, as is our custom, before we get into the regular meeting, the women will have to leave.
0: <laughs> and
1: I looked this way, and I looked that way, and I was the only one, and I, then immediately my mind worked I don't know how fast the mind can work, but I figured it out and say, four seconds, that Joe had said to Frank, when you get up there and open the meeting, I don't care how you do it, but get rid of that broad. She looks terrible. Who needs her? Now, I do it in as smooth a way as you can, make up something, but when you open the meeting, get rid of her. And this will all went through my mind. And so, to me, I was being thrown out, see. So I jumped up and put my hands over my face, crying, and I, I went out the nearest exit to the lobby and wrung my hands and cried and carried on. And, and my non-alcoholic husband, expensively dressed, looked like a senator, he had board glasses, he'd never had a short beer in his life, he sat there, see, he stayed. They thought he was the drunk. And I lurked around in that lobby and lurked and lurked and lurked and And my God, the meeting wasn't over for hours because they came from far and wide, one man from Santa Barbara, another one from Hanford, one from San Bernardino, Mel Tricky from Orange County, and um, the few local boys, and that was it. Well, if they were going to meet once a week, they didn't watch the clock, they didn't care if it was 10 o'clock, they didn't care if it was 10.30 or 11. They just talked because they were hungry and thirsty for this thing and lonely for each other. And they live long distances away, so here I am pacing back and forth till I thought I would die. And eventually the doors opened and they came out. And I had concluded by that time that they were that that they were specialists, that they were doctors, and that they were in there quizzing my husband and they were discussing my case. I thought there had to be something like that, and that they would give him some pills or, or maybe tell them to, to to go back in there and let them vaccinate me or the cure the vaccination. I would have been willing. Uh, eventually the door opened and, and Dick came out and I said, give me my pills and let's go home. I've been going crazy. He said, I said, he said, they don't even know you're alive. They never mentioned your name. He said, they looked at me oddly all the time I was there and everybody that spoke looked at me. I couldn't figure it out. Well, I just burst into hysterics and I, I ran away from him and went to the nearest bar and got drunk and then I got my nickel out of my purse and I called up AA and told them what I thought of just exactly at the proper time 2 o'clock in the morning Cliff <laughs> Walker answered the phone <coughs> my first words to him I, uh, I started delirious and remembering the Saturday Evening Post article I said send your AA ambulance and pick me up
0: <laughs>
1: and he said you're drunk I said, of course. I said, I'm ready. And he says, we don't do that. We just don't do that. He said, why don't you go to the meeting? And I said, I did. And they threw me out. He said, there's has been a mistake. They wouldn't have done that. I said, but they did. He said, but did you tell them you're a woman alcoholic? And I said, certainly not. Certainly not. <laughs> And he says, well, you should have, because you would have been as welcome as the flowers in May. They thought you were one of the wives, and undoubtedly, he said, I couldn't be down there tonight, but undoubtedly the wives awaiting that announcement, which is made at every meeting, were already sitting in the lobby. There was no Al-Anon, you know, and it was a closed alcoholic meeting, and that was the size of that. They weren't trying to do anything bad to me at all. He said, the wives always wait in the lobby, or if there's any that's in the meeting that don't know any better, the the announcement has to be made. The women will please leave the room. That's all. But they did not know that you were alcoholic. You did not tell them so. You didn't talk to them. You would have been as welcome as the flowers in May, so you go back. Uh, next Friday, I'll call them up and get it all straightened out. And I, oh, I was furious. I said I'll not do any such thing, but of course I did. <laughs> and the following Friday, my brother Tex came over and he said, "I'm going to go down there with you to expose that racket. It's a money, ma- it's a money-making scheme. I know it's a money-making scheme, and I want my share. I'm going to go down where the money is." So I did something intuitively. I begged and pleaded with him, Tex, please don't go. Tex, don't go to hey, hey, This is my thing. You told me I drank too much and I'm trying to do something about it and you always said you could take it or leave it alone. Now don't go down there and they'll throw us both out and then I'll lose my chance. No, he said, I'll be quiet. I won't drink. I'll be sober. They won't know the difference that I'm not an alcoholic and I'll just go down there and look over the lay of the land. And that Friday night, by this time, my brother, who had uh, a keen alcoholic mind, had made many fortunes and been lost in gambling and drinking. He'd make a lot of money, broke. Make a lot of money, broke. And this time, he was he was really broke. He was peddling vegetables from down, down Stanford Street, there where the trucks pull out at daylight, and he had a big crew of winos on the truck to peddle vegetables and melons out in the suburbs and so the following Friday he pulled up in front of my house and the vegetable truck was 11 winos that were working for him and I get up in the cab of the truck and we go back to the mother group and there were more of us than there were of them I and I'm absolutely petrified because I'm afraid he's going to open his big mouth and have me thrown out again or something but he was strangely quiet and I should have known he was hurting but he was just wouldn't admit it wouldn't admit it at all and uh now here's the thing that happened. The only thing I remember is that after Frank made his beautiful talk, as I say, he did that for two years, and and then uh, Mark made his talk for two years. We didn't have elections or secretaries; you you were just dictators. That's about what it was. Behind dictators. Uh, after a while, Frank went out somewhere and got a big uh, carton, three times that big, uh, that carton. I was a ticket it and it was full of letters from suffering alcoholics from all over the. Uh, from all over California and that mail had been forwarded by Ruth Hawk that week and my letter had gotten there prematurely ahead of the flood of mails in the Saturday Evening Post article and these were 12 step calls every letter was a sick dying drop and Frank came back with that carton and I I don't know what's going on at that time but I'm, I'm, I'm real interested in watching this pageant I don't know what's going to happen next and I heard him say hear this Any of you jokers that have been sober 15 minutes, you come on up here and get these 12-step calls and make them and bring these drunks down here next Friday.
0: I've
1: got these letters all bundled up according to the counties and the towns and the streets and the sections like Glendale, Pasadena, the beaches, and the southwest and the southeast and Norwalk and San Bernardino and Santa Barbara, so as I call out, and he had them all wrapped up with rubber bands or tied with twine, maybe 50 or 60, uh, to each uh, section, see, he'd say, anybody here from San Bernardino? And Kent Hayden raised his hand, said, here, come up here, Kent, get these calls, go pound those doorbells and bring those drunks down here next Friday, and then he'd call out a different section, and this went on until they were all gone but one stack. And he picked it up and he said, I've saved this stack to the last because they're all for women alcoholics. And uh, uh, we've got, as I understand it, we've got a woman alcoholic now. He said, uh, uh, Cliff Walker called me and said she called him up drunk. And he told her to come back down here sober. Are you Sybil Maxwell? I said, yes, sir. <laughs> he said, uh, okay, come on up here, Sybil. I've been expecting you. Come on up here. And I, I just sat. My, I just sat. Uh, I, I, oh, I was so sick, so embarrassed. I, I could not get a He said, I said, come on up here, Sybil. I, uh, these letters are all from women, just as sick as you were when you called up last week. They're all from women alcoholics, and I'm putting you in charge of all the women. That was all they had. So Sybil's in charge. It rang through my ears like this. Well, even more so, besides ringing in my ears, I could see a sign, like a a neon sign going on and off, Sybilson charge. (laughs) And I thought as I got up and slowly walked up there, boy, you get promoted here in a hurry. (laughs) rolled out last week, and now I'm in So I sorted those letters out (laughs) according to the town or the area. My brother Tex came over and he muttered, well, I didn't, I'm not doing anything today anyway, so I thought that I'd just ride around with you for laughs." Well, that's what we did we rode around with each other for laughs and for sobriety until he died at the hole in the ground which he started within a month after he got sober he he went faithfully to those friday night meetings drove me down there every friday he was very quiet he didn't raise his hand and humiliate me he was listening and i didn't realize how the man had been hurting he kept, yeah he was a marvelous actor about it and uh, one night he said uh, you know sib was kind of ridiculous for us to be going down to Long Beach on Wednesday and meeting in Curly O'Neill's home and then down to the mother group downtown on Friday. I think I'll start a group uh, about halfway so we can have one right in the middle of the week. And he did. He started a hole in the ground in Huntington Park. Well, I tell you, the founders downtown what do you think they did <laughs> uh, he was just as innocent as a newborn child when he started that he just did it for good reasons you know to kind of go there and then go there and then go to Long Beach just natural evolution of the whole thing but anyway when we went down there the meeting the the week that he started that meeting the uh, elders or the clique or the committee or whoever you want to call troublemakers
0: uh, <laughs>
1: They, they were all charged up, and they met him at the door. And they said, we were expecting you, and we're here to tell you that we knew when we laid eyes on you that you were going to be a, a trouble maker and disrupt our group, which has always been such a peaceful one until you came along. And we hear you started a new group. And Charlie here, and Max, and Al, and Dick, we have incorporated alcoholics from honor, in california which means no one can start a group without our permission <laughs> and we are here to tell you that you will have to fold up that new group you've started because we're not giving you our permission <laughs> and so we're incorporated and that's the way it is and tech sat down he was laughing so hard and he roared and he laughed and he screamed until tears were rolling down his face he says you've incorporated aa He said, I'll lay you eight to five and then three months, we'll have groups from here to Orange County and down by the sea. And of course, he was right. But it took a few months. It really took a few months for for everybody to get over viewing with alarm for the good of the cause, as Bill says. We were afraid somebody would rock the boat and hurt, hurt things, but that just didn't happen. We were busy running around making 12 step calls and life was good. I'll tell you how I felt about AA. I was so um, privileged, so honored. I felt so, uh, this this thing, the anonymity of it, that I, I, Sybil, belong to Alcoholics Anonymous that I remember leaving my house one day to walk a block down to the grocery store to get a loaf of bread. Residential area houses on both sides of the street. And as I walked down the street to go to the store, I looked into the windows of all of my neighbors going to the store, and I'd look, in the, look at each house as I passed it. And with my chin up in the air, I said to myself, "They don't know it, but I'm anonymous." <laughs> I remember that so well. I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I kept waiting for it to wear off, and I'll tell you why, because I always had enthusiasm. Oh, this is it, this is it, you know. Like Tex and I, and our other brother and his wife, we played bridge uh, night and day, uh, all Saturday nights until Sunday morning, until Sunday noon, and then uh, drink coffee and play more bridge, and we wouldn't stop till everybody just fell over. We never did anything in moderation, and uh, nothing. It wouldn't matter what it was. And so I figured that this thing would wear off. I gave it about three weeks, and I was afraid. Oh, I really was fearful that I'd wake up one morning and say, "Oh, to hell with it. You know, uh, short beer can't hurt. I know better now, I've heard them, I've heard what they had to say, and, and I, I, it'll be different this time. And I was afraid that all this was gonna happen. But in the meantime, they were really keeping me busy making these calls, and I'd bring those gals in just Oh, you have no idea how many women were writing in for help about that time, but all of a sudden one girl that I had called on, her name was Kay Riley. I went down to the Friday night group and they had made me feel important. They had given me a little book, and Frank had said, I want you to list the name of every girl that calls for help, and then I want you to list list opposite that uh, sponsor and sponsee. I want you to put in there her sponsor and, and who you gave the call to, and then you could see me Fridays and show me your book and everything ought to just come out right, you know. And anyway, I went to a big Friday night meeting now, 200 people, big Friday night meeting, and and this girl that I'd been giving some 12-step calls had been giving, and I knew the names of them and everything, and uh, so I turned to her page, uh, you know, to check it out, because it was my responsibility, it was my big job, and she walked in with five strangers, five women, and none of them had been cleared through me. I couldn't believe it. And I walked right back there to her, and I said, Kay, where did you get these women? And she said, it's none of your business. She said, You know, I live in Culver City, and I had a lot of drinking friends. We played bridge together, we did a lot of stuff together, and so they watched me stay sober, and they got very curious. They asked me how I was doing it, and they said, well, that sounds good to me. I'm awful sick with this thing, too, and I just brought them. That's the way it is. That's the way it's going to be, Sybil, and I'm never going to report to you again. And I got my nervous twitch back, right? it is so i thought that because i mean i had the the innocence of a small child about this thing and i i, I was right i was right I, I thought that it would all be peace and happiness and and ha 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 and great merriment and the dances on saturday night and and the meetings and uh, uh everything would just go along like that nothing bad could ever happen but i found out that, that wasn't true um and and, and AAs, most of them are magnificent when trouble comes. Uh, so I thought that because... I mean, I had the, the innocence of a small child about this thing, and I, I, I was right, I was right. I, I thought that it would all be peace and happiness and ha-ha-ha and, and great merriment and the dances on Saturday night and, and the meetings and uh, uh, everything would just go along like that. Nothing bad could ever happen. But I found out that wasn't true. Um, and, and, and AA's, most of them are magnificent when trouble comes. Uh, Bill Wilson once wrote me a letter. He came out to see us uh, several times. I mean, he would travel around uh, many places where AA was starting just to see how his program was working. And uh, he enjoyed doing that. And he came out to Los Angeles three or four times, maybe five times. I, I really don't know but it was great, just, just tremendous, and and he would correspond with us, and we'd write him for advice, and, and things of that nature, and I, I, I saved his letters, especially one that I'll quote to you a little bit later, and uh, uh, it just uh, never did wear off with me, at all. My enthusiasm never did wear off, and I thought that nothing bad could ever happen, but Tex was my promoter at a wrestling and boxing arena that I owned. Now that is strange, isn't it? I was a taxi dancer a brief time. I was a bootlegger with my brother Tex. I was also a legal secretary uh, during the depression and working on up to that when I I was a real estate broker for many years and then wound up with this boxing and wrestling arena and Tex uh, was my promoter in that. And then uh, TV came in and forget the rest of your boxing everybody stayed home and I had to go, go through bankruptcy and uh, lost my beautiful home and housekeeper and uh, broke and had to go get a piddling job as a secretary again so those are the things that happen in life whether you're sober or whether you're drunk or just some neighbor down the street uh, you make money, you lose some, you get some and uh, it, it all balances out me and I, I found out that that doesn't make any difference um, I. I take things very hard at the moment, but I I get over it very quickly, and and you know what? why? Of course. Uh, Because of my AA medicine. Uh, Alcoholics Anonymous to me is a medicine. I require large doses of it. My husband, Bob, who is a faithful member of AA, he's been sober 22 years. When I get a little meh, 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 grousing around there, you know, he'll say, Honey, uh, you didn't go to your meeting last Sunday, did you, or Thursday, or whatever? And I say, no, I didn't. Well, I'm not. I'm. I'm not one to tell you that you need a meeting, but, <laughs> and that's the way it is. Uh, I. Uh, uh, Bill Wilson had an expression when he would come out to see us. He'd say, "All oh, the people, the people, they just won't stay sick." <laughs> in other words, you get them just all lined up real good, in a good spiritual condition, and everything's fine, got the wife back, got probably the job back, but they just won't, just won't stay the same. And I think that it depends with me, with my kooky nature, that I stay fixed in proportion to the amount of AA that I have, or go to, or be with, or see, or attend. And, and, and Jimmy Burwell, who, who wrote the, uh, uh, the, his contribution to our book, was God as we understood him. He was the atheist that gave him so much trouble. And uh, he, he started the group in Philadelphia. When they were writing steps, he said, if you're going to put that word God in there, by golly, there may be another guy like me somewhere out of this great big world that doesn't believe in the God of that time. So I will go along with you with this book so far if you will add God as you understand me because I sure as hell don't understand him and that may get one more guy like me. And Bill looked up and said, Jimmy, that's a wonderful idea. I think that'll be a great contribution to our book. And uh, it was. And I'd go down to San Diego to visit Jimmy and Rosa and he'd say, well, are you still going to a lot of meetings, Sib? i said, say, yes, yeah, yes, yeah, Jimmy. Well, are you uh, are you going to meetings to speak or listen? And I I'd kind of changed the subject. He said, <laughs> I, I said, are you going to meetings where you talk? Or are you going to meetings where you sit? I said, oh, both, both, both. <laughs> yeah, I understand that. But what I'm trying to get across to you, Sib, is... For every meeting where you talk, you be sure you go to a meeting the next day or, and listen. Otherwise, you get yourself all out of whack, all out of balance. It's not a good thing. I can remember that like it was yesterday because it's the greatest advice in the world. That's why I like meetings like the hole in the ground. And other meetings out in our area, in the San Gabriel Valley and the Pasadena area, where you could go and participate, are the step study meetings and the Tuesday night meeting where it's a step study. Small group of 20 or 25 people, and everybody gets to participate if they can. Speaker groups are great, but I love uh, just name it, just just name it, and I, I I like I like all types of meetings, which is a very very good thing. Well, the first thing that happened that was a disaster was that when TV came in, I had to go through bankruptcy because. Uh, uh, Everybody sat home and looked at the screen, and got all the boxing and wrestling they could handle, and I looked at a big, empty stadium and no people. And I uh, finally went through bankruptcy and got a job, pecking away at the typewriter again. It was okay, I didn't mind that too much. And then my brother got sicker, and uh, sicker, and he finally uh, knew his time was coming, although he moved his hospital bed down into the hole of the ground, and, and did his cooking out in the kitchen, and <coughs> stayed there the last few months of his life. And the place was open all day, and people had drift in and out, it wasn't a club, still isn't, but it's still open all day. And people drift in and out, sit at the table, go out in the kitchen, drink coffee, and talk day AA. And um, he lived uh, several years like that, but then I lived about two blocks from there, and Tommy Butler ran out of my house one day, and he said, Jib, Tex is gone, I think, he isn't saying anything. And so I, I ran down there, and, and he was gone. And so the members went over and shut the door of the hole in the ground and, and said, well, out of respect for his memory, well, we'll lock the door for a day or two. And I said, look, I never heard of an occasion where an AA meeting was canceled. And the last thing in the world my brother would want would be to have, to have people come and the joint be locked up. And if you guys are, can't, don't feel like you want to leave the meeting tonight, I'll do it. And I did and people came from far and wide to pay honor to to my brother and they heard the news just you know how it gets around and i led the meeting and i called on as many as possible but what i'm mentioning this far is my following attitude in that i didn't uh get folded in people's arms and weep and sob and cry like you would have or like i should have i felt uh, I, I have never been able to describe this feeling. I just felt like that I had to uh, bear up, I suppose, under the, the, the sort of, set of good example. Whatever it was, it nearly killed me because I went on for a couple of weeks like that. I felt stony cold and no emotion. That's bad. That's bad. When you don't feel any emotion, when you should be overwhelmed, at least the way people are when they lose a loved one. But no, it didn't happen and i finally couldn't stand it anymore and i wrote bill wilson and i explained this condition to him and, and he uh knew text well Tex had visited him up in bedford hills and text and as i told you bill had been out here on i had been out to california to see us and he answered me immediately and i i uh i treasure that letter i have copies of it i xerox it and give it to friends who need it under a similar condition because it saved my life and put me back in the land of the living uh, one part of it, it said, uh, uh, somehow, uh, as, uh, I love Tex well. I do tell Tex well, and I love him also, Seb. Uh He says, in God's house there are many mansions, and somehow I see your brother Tex sitting on the porch of one of those mansions in the sunlight talking to another drop. That's my vision of Tex as of today. And so much for Tex, my dear. But as for you, I will tell you this that life is but a long day in school some of our lessons are hard and some of our lessons will be easy and it doesn't matter so much what happens to us here but it's what we do with the experiences we have it's the demonstration that counts and I read that and I began to get goose pimples and when I read it over the second time I began crying just a flood of tears and I don't know when I ever stopped but that was that, and it, uh, it was a healing type of thing. I didn't part with that letter, and I have read it over and over and over again. It was dated November 1952, and uh, I, I thought that the, the, the thoughts that he expressed uh, helped me so much that uh, it would help anyone else who might be or expects to be in a similar condition, I'd be happy to Xerox some more copies and mail them to you because Bill said somewhere in the letter, if you like what I've said, you may share it with anyone who needs it. Well, I liked very much what he had to say to me because it was just that helpful. I came in AA, and I believe it must have been an awful long time before. I may not be correct in this. Maybe, maybe it was a way of life and it was just it became a habit before I really, really uh, became uh, aware of the steps as such. Well, i put it this way. I was doing 12-step work. I was running myself ragged back in, So that, that's part of the 12th And I had, had a belief in a higher power, thankfully, before I came to AA. I had no problem with that. So you could say that that was part of some of the steps. And I did admit that I was alcoholic. And so going right through them, I had no quarrel with any of them, and you might say that I took them in that respect, but didn't think of them uh, like numbers, or that they came consecutively, or that perhaps for a reason in in depth, I didn't think of them. I was just glossing over them and living them some, but maybe not as well as when I heard uh, this particular thing. We had a guy at the hole in the ground that wasn't sober us. And everybody else seemed sober, but he would go and he'd come and he'd go and he'd get drunk and he'd come back. And finally one night when uh, my brother was right, not too long before he died, he, he, it was a hot July night. This guy came up to him with a crowd surrounding Tex, and he says, Tex, I want to be sober like all the rest of you guys down here. And he said, what step am I missing? And Tex said, Joe, don't talk to me here. I can hardly breathe. Let's go we'll sit out on the steps. When the people leave, and I, Tex lived with me at that time, so I went out and sat on the steps with him. And he said, "You wonder what step you've missed, Joel?" And Tex said, "Yeah, what step have I missed?" And Tex said, "Well, now let's look at uh, step number one, where we admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives have become unmanageable." He said, "Somehow, other Joel, uh, when I say that step, I seem to recall." that after you've been drunk you come back and you kind of chuckle and giggle about it like it was a lot of fun oh boy i pulled another one <laughs> kind of cute he said you're not kind of cute about it like it didn't hurt you much so i can't imagine anyone uh, doing that and at the same time admitting that they're powerless over alcohol their lives are unmanageable am i right and tex says you're right you're right tex thanks a lot and he got up to go. and tex got a hold of his uh, uh, coat and said sit down Joe we've just started <laughs> because I want to get into this with you when we're talking about the higher power of God as we understand him down there at a hole in the ground you'll always scoff at it and you, you'll always say that all you need is willpower and, all, and it's all you need is just to think 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 and he said it hasn't been getting the job done he says That's that step where we came to believe that a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity he said, you know, you, you are pretty arrogant about that. You have displeased a lot of people by that attitude because you kinda giggle and, and laugh at it. It ain't funny. And he says, we have come to believe, we have come to believe, some of us came here we didn't believe at first, and I have told them and they have heard it from others who told me, uh, nothing is original, that at first I didn't have to believe anything except maybe in the people. They look at them, watch them, See here, they're sitting here sober, and they were in bars drunk, and they were in jails drunk, and now here they are. So that's a power greater than yourself to begin with. Other people that don't want to do that will sometimes think of the book as a power greater than themselves. That's bigger than you are. The people in it, your sponsor, anyone that you want to select can be a power greater than yourself until you're able to latch on to something. And as you stay sober and as you go to meetings and as your understanding grows, then down the line somewhere you'll develop an understanding of some power greater than yourself. So don't don't turn loose of that now and, and say it'll never be that way because you just don't know. Just be willing and it will happen. And that puts you in a position, position to take the third one. We made a decision then to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God as we understood him. So as we understood him for you at this moment, let us just say that it's that you understand our group and you understand the people in it and you understand my sister and me and that we are your friends. And that's in the light of your understanding now. And then it will grow. And all the steps says, and he says, I think you get mixed up on this, Joe, as a lot of other people do. He says, we made a decision. That's all it says is that we made a decision. He said, it would be like if you came up to me, Joe and said, hey, Tex, you know what? I've made a decision to go to San Francisco next week. And he says, what if I saw you here next Friday at the meeting and you came up to me and you said, hey, Tex, you know what? I've made a decision to go to San Francisco next week. He said, you could do that every week and you'd never get to San Francisco. <laughs> so he said, that's the way it would be with this staff. We made a decision to turn our will and our lives over to the care of God, as we understood. You're not going to do it right this minute, but if you follow the rest of these steps, that will be the road that will lead you there. Don't you see, Joe? He said, just hang in there. Come to the needies. Don't drink and take it a step at a time in the light of your own understanding. He said, I don't mean you have to take them in order. A lot of people think you have to take them in order. Now the one we'll talk about now is in order because it's the fourth one where we made a searching and fearless moral inventory of ourselves and you've bragged to us before the meetings and during the coffee hour and everything else that you didn't have to write anything down that it was all right up here. All right up here. Baloney. Baloney. It's not. He said, I want to tell you what you could do, Joe, if you want to keep it really simple. Make it easy for you, Joe, your special case. <laughs> now, you get a stamp, oh, or a little bitty piece of paper that big would be easier to write on, just, just that big, an inch big, say, and a short stub of a pencil, and you write down one thing on it that's bugging you, and then do something about it, and that's an inventory. And he said, you can do that by the hour, or by the day, or by the week, or by the month, or all your life. And you will be taking an inventory. And he said, it'll be a lot different than the manuscripts that the people here at the Hole in the Ground bring me. He said, some of them are as long as gone with the wind. (laughs) He said, the thing is, is to get rid of the thing that's bugging you the most at that time, that day, that hour, that week and he says it follows up by saying later on that we continue to do this because we're going to continue to live and we're going to pile on more mistakes and more problems and it's a continuation of it further along so he says i don't see any big deal about that just write down one thing that's bugging you and then do something about it and then talk it over with somebody else admitted to god to ourselves and another human being the exact nature of our wrongs well the the wrong you have written down on that postage stamp uh you've admitted it to me and sometime or other you'll be able to admit it to some higher power maybe the group while you're standing up there in front talking to them who knows but that will be taking the fifth step to the rest of your ability today And then you became entirely ready to have god remove all these defects of character what defects of character the ones we've just been talking about or the ones that you're aware of now and humbly ask god to remove your shortcomings and they might ask me well why does it say defects of character and why does it say shortcomings in the next breath well he says i'll tell you why when bill was out here i asked him that question i said bill why did you say defects of character in one step and shortcomings in the other and Bill scratched his head and said well Tex let me tell you I was a budding young author and I just didn't want to be redundant I didn't want to use I didn't want to use the exact words twice in a row so I just juggled them around a little bit and he says and that's the truth and I've been to meetings where they would argue the difference in those steps for days and weeks (laughs) He made a list of all the persons we had harmed and became willing to make amends to them all. He said, that should be easy to do. Just start. You don't have to make a yellow di- telephone directory out of it to begin with. You've got a lifetime. Write down the name of one person you harmed, go over and say, I'm sorry, I won't do that again. They direct amends, I just told you, go see the guy, the gal, whoever it is. To, to those that you can, worry that you will not hurt someone else. That's the sense of the ninth step. Make Direct amends whenever possible except when to do so will injure them or or some other innocent people. And then, I'd already told you that they said we'd continue and continue and continue to take this personal inventory so that when we were wrong we could promptly admit it and not start letting the stuff pile up that we can't handle. Just a matter of simplicity. Eleven, where we sought through prayer and meditation to uh through prayer and meditation to whatever... Uh, do it for me gang. Yeah. Wherever possible. Our public relief, that's the 12th step. Let me get into that. So Thought through prayer and meditation to improve our conscious contact with God as we understood Him, praying only for knowledge of His will for us and then the power to carry that out. Now, it wouldn't do us a doggone bit of good if you just looked upon it as a long step, too deep, too hard, impossible uh, to do that. But uh, I was told that meditation meant good, clean thinking. Just just that. And that many members, new members especially, have to accept it just that way instead of as a prayer. It's kind of hard. For a person who is just sobering up to feel that they're clean enough, good enough, well enough, or maybe they haven't thought of church or God in their whole life or haven't thought of it in 30 years, but thought through prayer and meditation and get the job done, uh, fine for a long time to come. And many people never enter a church. We're not a churchy organization. To improve our conscious contact as we understood him, and you can just to spread that around the way that you understand praying only for knowledge of His will for far as the power the power to carry it out is terribly important uh, Now the twelfth of having had a spiritual awakening as a result of, of these steps we tried to carry this message to other alcoholics and then to practice these principles in all our affairs and that's where they exclaim what an order I can't go through with it but it's a daily process of living It's a daily process of living. Uh, No one ever gets up in the morning, I believe, and they'll grab their book and say, Well, I think it's time to get to step three today. Uh, Last week I did one and two, and now I believe I'll I'll dip into ten, eleven, and twelve. I've never heard it done that way in AA. Uh, We're human beings, and we make mistakes, and it will ever be thus. But our lives improve, Uh, we begin to gain friends, we finally learn to confide in people when we're in deep trouble i shouldn't speak for you but i wouldn't tell anybody when i was hurting i was afraid they'd think i wasn't perfect i guess i I don't know what i was thinking but i uh, i find it very difficult uh, to let them know that I was a human being and that I was, had a pretty rotten disposition at times, or that I felt put upon, or that I had to get rid of all the stuff as it piled up immediately so that I could feel good again. And then that was a lesson that took me a long time to learn. Sometimes I began to think about the newcomers that are coming in today and how quickly they latch onto this program and their marvelous understanding of these steps and the traditions. And I, I I think what a wonderful privilege it is to be with you and see how you react to situations. Uh, when you've had a bad, uh, bad thing happen, I'll have someone call me up, and then at the end of our conversation, which has been full of laughs and and just nonsense, and then they'll tell me something, bang, that happened to them. You know, and I'll say, oh, no, I didn't know about that. Oh, that's all right, Sib, I'm just getting long five. And uh, they adjust, they adapt, and they keep in touch and I think the important thing that we need each other so desperately I think the thing to do is to keep in touch we want to if we were told we had to call Susie up at 9 o'clock every morning or that we had to call up so and so and make a list of people that we had, had to do these things like kids at school i say forget it I'll do it on my own time you know I don't want people to give me directions uh, I, want, I want a free and easy program where that I have such faith in it that I do the best I can with it and then fail miserably but I pray a lot I'm not a bit ashamed to tell you that I knelt down in my bed in that hotel last night and I said oh god don't let all the words leave me and don't make me a good speaker just make me adequate so that when I leave Cincinnati they won't have to say well she didn't even make a point you know just let me be adequate adequate And that's about all you're going to get out of me. I hope I've been adequate. I know that I haven't been, uh, you know, a, a, a powerful speaker, that the, my words will be quoted and they'll say, and so Sybil says that's so song. Uh, <laughs> Sybil is full of mistakes, trying to do better, enjoying life. I was 77 last month. I was sober 44 years and a half. You oh, just <laughs> <laughs> I'm not supposed to be old. <laughs> oh, for heaven's sake. Well, I have great plans for the future, God willing. And of course, you'd have to be willing. But I plan to come back here to Cincinnati when I'm 99 and a half. Oh, <laughs> and as a newcomer. Because let me tell you what I think. No, I, I firmly believe this. This program isn't very old. This program itself is new, comparatively speaking, you know, and, uh, as a philosophy, as a way of life, 50 years old, our book says we know but little, uh, more will be revealed to us. And that's, that's it, that's the way it is now, uh, that's true. So in that sense, We'll, all of us here today then, are like little, little children in, in kindergarten, you know. Or another way to put it would be like that we're like little birds, little birds, little fledglings, a learning to fly. So, as a fledgling, and as your fledgling, learning to fly, may the wings of your happiness Never lose a feather. Thank you. God bless you.